Yeah, because I listened to the episode when I did bring it up. I was like, could have done better. <laughs> like, that was pretty rough stuff. <laughs> you clearly did not prepare. <laughs> Very honest. <laughs> Talking about compliance, something. <laughs> Who knows? Pretty much as a rule, if you use a voice that's not your normal voice in the pre-roll time, that's now our pre-roll. <laughs> so, okay, congratulations. Well, good to know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our ventures with you each week. So how's your week going, Chris? It is going well, although I'm sad to report that I have to send back one of my mechanical keyboards. Oh, no. I know, That right? is awful. Wait, one of them? One of them. Well, I have two now. I, did I know that? I don't know if you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I <laughs> Obviously, knew that. Obviously, no, this is a runaway hobby. We know this about mechanical keyboards. I ended up purchasing a slightly different version of the same keyboard that I have at the office for home. So I made, I made the leap, did that, but I ended up buying the mini version. So it's the Leopold 660, I want to say, but the mini layout, which I thought would just be slightly more compact layout. I didn't think anything else would change, but I think I've now found some details regarding something you brought up in previous weeks, which was the media keys. The larger format version that I have definitely has media keys. The mini that I have does not. So it has all the functions, and you can use the like function modifier on the keyboard to do function key things, but they don't do media keys. It also doesn't have a proper backtick key. The backtick, escape, and tilde are all sort of weirdly merged into one, and so I need to mix too many hand signs to make it work, and it's just it's not working for me. I have a, a horror story for that backtick key and yes oh that's that's so cool because yeah that's the same layout i have so now we can talk about the struggles together mm. the back tick because you have to hold down the function and yep. then hit the key to get the back tick so i wrote up this beautiful long description in trello in the trello description box mm-hmm. and i wanted to add some back ticks and i forgot to hit the function key so i ended up just hitting escape and trello just totally closed me out like it was just gone and i remember i was at home when this happened so tim was near me and he just because I, I cussed and he's like are you okay i was like no <laughs> So I have learned to be very wary. So just a word of advice, be cautious and don't put a lot of content into Trello and hope that it'll just persist because I lost it in that case. So I'm now putting it more like other places and then moving it to Trello when I need more time to think about it to make sure I won't accidentally lose it. I do a lot of authoring in Vim for things like that. And then I'll bring it in like if I'm doing long PR summaries, especially with inline code, those go in Vim. Although uh, interestingly on Trello specifically, I have a lot of trust. Like they're, they are a text box on the internet that I believe will not lose my text ever. But now you're having me question that. I'm pretty sure they do like a local storage. And if you reopen the card and you click into the description, it's like, oh, you were editing this most recently. But there are definitely ways that you could make that not happen. And if that happened to me, I would be similarly afraid. I think you're right, because I, I had the same impression where I closed it out and I was like, crap. And I was like, oh, wait, it's probably fine. But I opened it and it was definitely gone. So mm. I don't know if I did something particular in that spot where I lost it. Because I also have the impression that Trello does a pretty great job of like trying to keep up with what I'm adding in there, even when I haven't explicitly saved it. So, Oh, but wait, so why are you sending one of them back? Because the mini one has all of those complications with the keyboard. And so the one that I have at work, it is a fantastic keyboard. It's got the brown switches, which I really like. Just everything about it works really well for me. Then I got the mini, which is the same key fields, same browns and whatnot, but it has all of those like differences. And because I'm switching between the two of them, 
my brain hasn't adapted to the new, the smaller layout. I'm very well adapted to the larger layout with all the keys. And so I'm just like, I'm, I'm just sending it back and getting the other one. So if we're being honest, very soon I'll have three keyboards because mechanicalkeyboards.com does not have a exchange policy. Their policy is you just return the one and get a full refund if it's in full factory condition, and then you buy another. So I'm right now in that weird interstitial time where there's another one on order. Soon there'll be three that are in my ownership, and eventually I'll send back the first one. I really hope I do it within the time window that I have, but look what you've done, Steph. (laughs) Look what we've done. Yeah. (laughs) But that's all right. I'll I'll take the blame. I'll take the responsibility for that. I'm proud of it. That's funny that you mentioned that because I'm in a similar boat where I'm going back and forth between my Keychron and then the Leopold one, and they are such a different enough layout that, you know, now that you mention it, I wouldn't mind upgrading to the larger layout because I wanted the quiet keys at home. That Mm -hmm. was a big one. And then I wanted a smaller one for work that I could carry to client offices if I wanted to. And I have that with the Keychron. It's a great layout. It's lightweight enough that I can tote it around with me. So you've got me thinking that maybe I would exchange mine. I still keep the Topper keys or the Topper switches, but then get the larger layout so that way my brain doesn't have to switch between my work keyboard and my home keyboard. Cool. Well, cool. (laughs) More keyboards. How about you? What have you been up to? So I'm writing my first bit of Ember this week which has been fun. I say first bit. I have worked with a team a couple jobs ago where the team was using Ember, but we were also using Elixir and Phoenix, and I was definitely in the Elixir Phoenix space, and I was near people writing Ember, but I'm pretty positive I don't think I ever actually contributed to that code base. So this feels like my first Ember experience, and I have to say I'm I'm having fun. Like It's gone well. I've enjoyed working with Ember code base, I also realized because I was just sort of like coding along and impressed with how easy it felt to add what I wanted to add to the code base and working with Ember. And I realized a lot of the reason I was having fun and joy was because of Prettier. That was the part Mm. that I think I'm actually really excited about just because I want all of that feedback. And Prettier gives me so much good information that I just don't have in Ruby. I can't wait for like Prettier to come to Ruby. I should check in on that project and see where they're where they're at and if maybe have like a fun Friday to be able to contribute to it. That'd be a lot of fun. So yeah, it's just been kind of fun to be in something new, to see what I don't know about Ember. Uh, I've worked in React, so I'm trying to think of stuff that's relatable between the two. And I'm sure that's helping my experience because I did a project in React. And Elm. You got that in your background as well. That's true. Elm has certainly helped. Elm has shaped so much about the way I think about how when I write code, how it's a far more functional approach that I take to writing my code that I really appreciate. I love Elm. I recommend it to everyone at this point unequivocally. Like, yeah, you should just do that. It's a very friendly, welcoming, but functional and really dials it up to 11. And I appreciate that dialing it up to 11, even if it's not necessarily the best thing forever. I appreciate that they just went 100% on that idea because I'm right now struggling with something this past week in TypeScript where they purposefully chose to weaken the type system to make it work, frankly, with JavaScript. But man, I wish it didn't have that. I've learned because of working in Elm, I'm more judgmental of other tech stacks in the front end world. So working in Ember, when it hasn't warned me of like typos or that I'm calling a non-existent function on something that it doesn't tell me anything, which, yeah, that's right. That's how it behaves. But I have this expectation because I'm like, oh, I'm on front end and I'm used to Elm. So it should be warning me of this Mm -hmm. stuff. And I get angry about it. I'm like, well, I don't get angry at Ruby and Ruby doesn't really help me with this stuff. But I don't know. For some reason, I just I started getting angry at Ruby. 
like after I went and spent some time in Elm and then I came back, I'm like, wait, why is no one telling me when I'm writing nonsense? Feels yeah. like you should tell me. Yeah. But no, I got to have tests for that and still have tests and other things. Although I don't write many tests in Elm and it, I don't know how much the ecosystem, how much people are writing tests in the Elm world. That's such an interesting point. When I was writing Elm, I'm going to say something that I feel a little nervous saying. I don't think I wrote any tests. I don't think I wrote a single test. I will say the same words. Okay. Uh, and I felt fine about it from a... Well, so th I think that's not entirely true for either of us because we did have feature coverage. Yes. So we had Capybara spin up the browser, actually interact with this page. And then we just had the Elm type system. And frankly, between those two, I actually had really good confidence that all of that code was going to work. And occasionally it wouldn't work for really subtle reasons. But when I wanted to fix that, it's like, oh, we're missing a particular pattern. There's a string that we need to parse differently. But the app never crashed. It would never crash. Elm doesn't crash. And more and more, I actually believe that that's true. Whereas like TypeScript definitely doesn't have that guarantee. And even Haskell doesn't have that guarantee, which is interesting. But Elm, I think legitimately, there's like a very, very small subset of cases in which you can crash an Elm program. You have to like try to do it. I feel like you did that once. <laughs> I did. I feel I mean, like it was like you, a build but system. But it was like, or, yeah, it was something funky. And you're like, what's wrong with the world? <laughs> I It did shake me to my core. Um, no, the, the TypeScript thing that I ran into this week is if you are accessing an array, and so you say like, say you have a user's array. So it's users, it's an array of user objects. And you say users bracket zero, close bracket. So give me the first element of the user's array. The inferred type of that is whatever the type of the array is. So if it's a, an array of users, then the return type of that is user. You definitely got back a user. That is not how array access in JavaScript works. This is definitely going to be undefined some of the time. If you have an empty array and you access the first element, congratulations, you've got undefined. And the TypeScript creators very specifically chose to not implement it that way. Turns out that would break just about everything. And that like meeting JavaScript where it is thing, nah, wouldn't work if you tried to go full extreme mode. I really want a setting in the compiler, though. TypeScript has so many of these settings where you can like dial up the strictness. I want, no, make me pay for it. Like mm. really be like Elm is basically what I want. Would the stronger type there be that it's a user or undefined? So you have yep. both possible states? Yeah. And so in Elm, the way that works is it's a maybe user that you would get back. So array access or list access in Elm returns a maybe value. Interestingly, in Haskell, it does not. So the head function in Haskell, when you're interacting with a list, gets you the head of the first element of the list, and it is assumed to be present. And it's actually like a way that Haskell programs will throw exceptions. Interesting. Which is surprising. Yeah. And you don't have exception management in Haskell because they mainly say that they don't have exceptions. If it compiles, it works. But there are ways to get around that. And they're like, everyone's sort of made their own little library that handles it, as far as I understand it, and says, no, 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 make this a complete function, return a maybe value here. But I really love that Elm, as sort of a philosophical standpoint, said, no, we are not going to cut any corners we're going to do this for real. If you're getting some JSON back, you can't just say it's in this shape. You have to parse it. If you're accessing an element from an array, it definitely might not be there. So deal with that in whatever way you want to. And I, I like the extreme take. Yeah, I agree. I would prefer that as well to have like the, like you said, kind of make you pay for it. Although that sounds harsh because in, in a way it's actually, it's helping us. Like we're not just paying for it, but I agree with you. I'd rather dial it up to 11. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, I want to spend more time in that world and see where do I get annoyed? 
where does the boilerplate and the verbosity, because you have to do more to work in that sort of situation. You have to convince the compiler that you know what you're doing, and you have to prove it to Elm, whereas with TypeScript or other languages, you're like, I promise, and then you go do things. You can just typecast and TypeScript all over the place. And as a result, like I spent this past week cleaning up lots of errors in the error tracking system, and a lot of them were places where we were explicitly telling TypeScript something, and TypeScript was like, no, that's not... Well, the runtime was throwing an error because the thing that we had said to TypeScript was not true. We said, this is definitely not null. Spoiler, narrator voice, <laughs> it was null. This is definitely an array of things. Nope, maybe it's an empty array. Is that one of the cases where we had coerced TypeScript into believing something instead of really relying on TypeScript to tell us the truth? It's actually, I think, worse is too strong of a word, but the specific example that I ran into was the non-null assertion operator in TypeScript. So if you have a value and you're trying to access it, like foo.bar.baz, and it says foo may be undefined, if you say foo bang, so put an exclamation point at the end of it, you are asserting to the TypeScript type system, this is definitely not null, I promise. And then from there, TypeScript will let you continue on as if it's definitively not null. There were a couple of those in this particular case, and the error that we got was, you tried to call this method on undefined, and turns out it was undefined. So as you're seeing those errors pop up, how are you triaging them, or how are you noticing that they're, they're coming about? Yeah, so the client is using Sentry in this particular case, one of many of the, the various error tracking services. I've really enjoyed Sentry. It's got a lot of features. We've actually been digging in, and the goal that the small team of two that I am on has been to basically reclaim Sentry. It had sort of gotten out of control, and folks were not paying as much attention to it. And so it was this large list of errors that everyone was sort of half ignoring but hadn't explicitly ignored in the UI. So we've been going through, and the triage process is... It's very much an art and not a science. I wish it were more of a science, but there are errors that are sort of outside of our control. And so we're saying, okay, we can ignore these or we can resolve them. Or there's actually some really nice features in Sentry for ignore for one week or ignore until it affects 10 users or until it crosses a threshold, like 10 users per hour. And so there are certain things where we've said, this is going to happen. We do want to know about it in general. Like we want to track that in the system because it may be part of a, a larger workflow sequence that a user is doing but we don't really care about it every time it happens. Basically, like if it starts happening a ton, tell us. And so a lot of things we ended up introducing ignore with threshold sort of thing. But yeah, it's been a very case-by-case, case, some actual cleaning up of errors in the code, but a lot of just how do we fix the signal-to-noise ratio here so that when we look at that error list, it's meaningful. I love those features that you mentioned. I was just about to ask that, and then you, you went ahead and answered it for me. Because that way you feel like you can truly like address an error that comes up. Otherwise, you could comment to your team and be like, hey, I don't think we have to worry about this one, but the fact that you can silence it for different metrics that it has to achieve to be noisy again is a really nice way that you can feel like you've concretely like addressed that error and moved on to the next one. Do you have people that rotate and address these sentry errors, or is it just sort of whoever happens to have time to look at them? How do um, they organize work around it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Right now, the team that I am on, our goal is to get it back under control such that it's giving that like high signal-to-noise ratio. And then my dream is to get it piping into the main Slack room, the team that is owning the UI that the sentry is connected to, that they're seeing that pipe in. But I feel like there's a limit to like if it's more than five errors a day then it will probably be decided to be noise and relegated to a different channel or hidden or otherwise from there i've been drafting up a document that summarizes some of these triaging ideas like here's all the different things after looking at a thousand of these errors we basically bucketed it down and here are some of the ways that we've resolved them and the, the like logic behind that 
So trying to write up error management, the good parts, I guess, is a way to describe this document that I'm writing. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, but it's very much the goal is like, how do we make it so that everyone feels empowered to do this? And I think one of the main things that we struggle with is, okay, there's an error. Yeah, it's there, but I can't fix it for reasons, which like we have some shared code coming in from different things that are logging in places that end up as errors in the system. We don't want to turn that off because other systems are currently using that and may rely on it. But it's not really an error. Like we've handled it in the UI. We're presenting a meaningful message to the user. So we kind of want to silence it here, but not completely. And it's that subtle line that thus far, I think it leads people to go sort of numb to these lists. And so we're trying to find that, like, how do we empower people to say, like, I will ignore under these circumstances with these caveats. Sort of exactly how I manage email, actually. I was so glad when Gmail added snooze as an option. Oh, God, that was a lifesaver. I can actually do inbox zero now. Oh, yeah. Snooze is nice. My favorite still the fact that I can delay send. Yes. I can schedule emails. That one, I still, every time I do it, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and the fact that perfect. it works on the mobile client is really nice, that there's feature parity across them and that I, all the stuff that I want to do, I can do in either place. I hate when there's, like right now, Trello has Snooze on cards and I use it a ton, but I can't do it from the mobile client. And it mm. makes me very sad. It means that like I have this different interaction mode or I won't really interact until I'm back at desktop. And that's a letdown. Yeah, I feel you. So is that how many errors that you are managing? Or is that kind of an example you're throwing out? You mentioned earlier, you're handling like thousands of errors. Mm -hmm. Is it that big of a triage effort that's taking Uh, place? Yes and no. There were literally that many or probably more, but a lot of them were, it's the same error, but the error string was an interpolated message. So it wasn't user encountered permissions error and then a payload of this is the user, this is the permission, this is the thing. It was a string that had those values interpolated into it. And so the way Sentry works, or the way I think most of these error systems work, is to treat each of those as a distinct error because the text is different. So ideally what you do is you structure the error when you're reporting it in a more structured format. So it's got the string, but the string is a consistent sort of tag almost, user permission error or something like that. And then you have the payload that comes along with it. Thankfully, there are features where you can fold those together so you can fingerprint errors in Sentry. And it basically says, here's a regular expression and the value that I want you to map it. Here's the like label that I want you to map all of the matching errors to. And so that's a way for us to fold a bunch of them down and then act on that one, what we've rolled up into a single error. Nice. Okay. I was curious. This is kind of a nice conversation circling back to something you and I talked about previously on another client where we were feeling fatigued from all the errors that were hitting everyone on the team. So it's just kind of nice circling back to like have another shot at like implementing some of these practices that we believe in to try to reduce any fatigue that people are seeing so we can get back to errors having meaning in our life. Otherwise, I like what you said, like we want to pipe into like a Slack channel so people can see it. But if it's more than like five or 10 errors each day, one, you don't know who's actually addressing the error. So that becomes ambiguous. And then two, it's just no one wants to look in that channel. (laughs) Like no one's going to want to like step away from their other important work to then just see what else is going wrong. Yeah, it's, it's interesting with that as the mindset, I found myself coming around to the idea that false positives are probably worse than false negatives. Like an error that shows up that isn't really actionable and doesn't really mean anything is perhaps worse than not seeing an error when it's real. Very slightly, because when I say that, that feels wrong. Obviously, I want to know about every error, except a lot of them are just noise. And if there's too much noise, then I ignore the whole thing and then we're way worse off. And I've seen this consistently between clients. It's rare to see a very well-kempt error backlog. And it's a thing that this sort of, okay, let's buckle down and actually clean it up such that we can use it moving forward is a thing that I've done a lot of times with clients. 
and it's it's hard. Errors are hard. You yeah. can just use Elm and not have errors. <laughs> oh, you said something interesting with Elm earlier, though, talking about how there's more time invested up front because you have to be more explicit. And we may have talked about this before as well. But it is an interesting trade-off because, sure, there may be more of an initial investment. But then if I'm not having to write as many unit tests to then accompany that, then I feel like the time really balances out. Like, I'm just deciding if I want to put the time up front or if I'm then going to spend more time in unit tests testing my code. But yeah, Elm's great. Elm, Elm <laughs> is great. In Elm. <laughs> the refactoring, the like ability to continuously refactor over time really does feel so meaningful. Like if we're being honest, I, I had a few cocktails the other night and I was like, oh, I want to play around with some Elm thing. I was trying out the, the browser library for URL based stuff. And I think there's a Sandy Metz quote about like, you want to be able to write your codes, the, the like one beer test or something like that. Uh, and so this was sort of an exploration of that. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know this part of Elm at all. This is completely new library and types and way to think about doing this. It's also very different than the way URL stuff is handled in any other language or framework that I've worked with. I still kind of just plotted my way through it. I just started with something and it was kind of wrong, but the error message told me where to go. And then I looked up something else and then I just kept moving. And then suddenly I had a working application. Like once it compiled, I went to the browser and it did the thing. And I was like, huh, huh. <laughs> I just kind of like caught in that moment of, in that case, it wasn't a refactor, but it was changing the system in a way that was sort of outside of my knowledge. And yet Elm sort of held my hand and got me there. So that was very interesting. It was a nice little case study of that. Nice. That's really cool. I haven't used the one beer test for my code. Mm. <laughs> now I'm going to keep that in mind more. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out it's terrible most of the time. I cannot write Ruby if I've had a beer. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I might struggle with that too, but... It'll be worth the investment, uh, you know. The investment of a beer. <laughs> yes. Totally. I'm just going to be that champion and go for it. Yep. <laughs> Seems fair. So switching topics just a little bit, um, one of the really neat things that happened this week for me as well is a client team that I'm working with. Uh, the company leadership met with myself and the two other thought botters that are on the project, and they put something on our calendar a couple weeks back to schedule a retro, but they wanted to wait until we'd have time to work with our teams and have some experience and then had a retro with us, which was really awesome. A lot of teams don't necessarily go out of their way to ask us for feedback, even though they are bringing us in as consultants to help out. It could be with a number of things, but they may not explicitly like set aside a time for a retro, although we have our team retros. So we do have that, but it was just kind of nice that they were also interested in very specific, like we've put you across different teams and we would love to hear your feedback and how things are going and collect some of that information. So that was really cool. And then it made me step back to think more of when I go to a client, what are some of the things that I'm looking for? Some of the things that I can provide some guidance around and some of those areas that bubbled up and you can add to the list as you think of some. But I'm often looking for like, what are some of their risk and their processes? Is there an important deadline that they've brought us in to help that they need to achieve, but they're at risk of not achieving for some reason? Uh, it's also around like code quality. It includes testing, uh, some of their processes around continuous deployment. Do they have healthy like PR reviews as well as contributions to the code base? And then more of an obvious opportunity for mentorship or looking for ways that we can help out with the team. So it's kind of nice to have like a moment to reflect on the list of things that I'm looking for when I'm joining a team and areas that I'm, I'm looking to help improve the processes. Is there anything else that you would add to that list? Anything I left off? I think that ends up being like a really good specific list. The thing that I'm thinking about is what's the higher level? Like what's the big picture? What are we trying to achieve overall with every client? And I think for me, it's consistent velocity. It's not even necessarily the, the like full speed. For me, I think the best engagements are the ones where we have a consistent 
each day, each week, we're just sort of moving forward at a pace that's understandable and knowable. And so everything that you listed, if those aren't going right, they will affect that. We'll have fits and starts of productivity. We'll have times where we need to do major refactorings or we'll have PRs that aren't getting reviewed or other things that are affecting it. And so there are all these other little measures, but it's that is the sort of core idea of do we have an engineering team that is well aligned and works well together to consistently produce quality software that serves real user needs? Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of stuff can be a symptom that then leads to mm-hmm. much bigger problems. So if you're looking at that big picture, then you can drill down to some of the more specific items. And then one of the other things that I've been working on is we have a upcoming workshop around how to stay agile when building a healthcare product. So for anyone that is working in a space where they have some compliance concerns, privacy concerns that they need to go through additional government regulations, and then ensuring how your team continues to ship incrementally and stay agile while you do have these exterior forces that are also impacting your team in those considerations. So I've been working on building content for that particular workshop that's coming up in a few weeks. I'm pretty excited. I'm still in that nervous stage where I'm still aggregating all the content that I want to say. And then once I have it down pat, I'll, I'll be pretty excited. But yeah, if anyone's interested, we'll include a link in the show notes to it. It's happening December 10th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's totally free. So anyone can call in and watch it. I'm super excited to see that. I like the sort of specific lens that that workshop will have around the healthcare and compliance and all of those things, but with that core theme of how do we remain agile and like what we were just talking about of what do we view as success? What's the goal? What are we trying to achieve with our clients? And it's interesting because the healthcare clients do end up being different in certain ways. And yet I think a lot of our work is trying to get them to not be different. And so I'm super interested to hear how you frame that and what you talk about. And I think it's going to be great. Ooh, thanks. I hope I live up to the hype. (laughs) I completely agree with the companies that I've worked with. It's often trying to not deviate towards like a waterfall approach, even though there are going to be some constraints or some additional concerns that you have to take on. So one of the things about this workshop is like, I'm not a compliance expert when it comes to all the health data concerns that are out there and all the regulations that you have to follow, but we are agile experts. So that's one of the reasons like we are framing this particular workshop in that lens of like, this is how you stay agile, even when you are facing all these additional barriers to getting your product out to market and working with people that you need to be more empathetic to because they're in a particular space. A lot of times when folks are using a healthcare product, it may not be by choice, like a lot of the products that we work on, they choose to opt into those. And some of these products they are going to need to use because it's how they get access to medication or it's how they talk to their doctor. So there are additional levels that's really worth exploring when you're in that particular space. So Steph, I have a uh, an unrelated question for you. Um, this is the thing that I was thinking about in my own life and my own development career. And I was wondering where you stand on this. Have you ever asked a question on Stack Overflow? Oh, uh, I haven't. Neither have I. I didn't know that was going to be your answer, although I'm not surprised. Why haven't we? Uh, well, I'm curious. Why do you say you're not surprised? I don't know. That, that was my expectation. Okay. So I was sort of examining my own reasons because I'm kind of surprised by this about myself. And yet as I poked at my, the stories I tell myself in my head, it made more sense to me. And my guess is you're somewhat similar in the way that you think of things. But I'm, I'm really interested in why haven't you? There are definitely plenty of questions out there, things that you need to know. And for me, I've just never reached for that as a way to get more information, but... 
I think I've been very fortunate and I've always had access to people to ask the question to. Well, I've either been very fortunate and lots of people have already done that work for me and they have the questions on Stack Overflow because I definitely use the heck out of it mm. um, when I'm looking for stuff. So lots of people have already contributed in a way so then I don't have to since it already exists. And then there's also the fact I'm very fortunate to have access to people that are also helpful in providing answers. Like even before joining ThoughtBot, like I've always worked with a team. There was only one job I had my very first job where I didn't have anyone to lean on. And even then I was coming to ThoughtBot during the weekly meetups, like just asking for help because I was a junior in a job with like no parental guidance in that role. Where are the grownups? I needed an Uh. adult. And now you are that adult. And now I am the adult. So I've I've been fortunate where I think I've just always had, like in our ThoughtBot Slack, we have different channels for Ruby, Elixir, JavaScript, a general dev channel security. So there's always someone that I can go and talk to. So I think that's why. I think I'd be more intrigued in the fact that I haven't answered any questions on Stack Overflow. Because mm. then I feel this unnecessary sense of like guiltiness for not contributing back to the universe and all the people that have worked hard to surface these questions. But then again, I guess a lot of the questions I come to already have answers. So it just hasn't been something like, oh, this person needs help and I should like some other kind soul has already come along and done that. So so yeah, I guess that's where I'm at. Do you have any thoughts on why you haven't? Uh, Yeah, I think for me, it's a little more subtle Early on in my career, before I started at ThoughtBot, I was just learning on the internet, reading blogs and things like that. And I felt like I was too new to feel comfortable asking a question. Like, I'm going to ask a dumb question. And so people will yell at me on the internet. I was very scared of that. So I didn't ask at that point. And then I joined ThoughtBot. And for similar reasons, there's a great network here. And I was able to lean on that. But I definitely still have questions that I run into and I don't get an answer. Or no one at ThoughtBot can answer it. And so I go source diving or I go go searching all the more deeply. Or I just try out a bunch of things. And I just happened to think about this. I was like, wait, well, I've never asked a Stack Overflow question. That seems weird. And I'm now recognizing it as probably not a good thing because these questions that I have, other people have them. And if I put it on Stack Overflow and then someone, even myself, answers it, which I don't think you're supposed to do that directly, like it's not a blogging platform, but if you do end up coming up with the answer to your own question, go back and answer it. That's a good thing to do. And then it's shared more. Like what you were saying of we have access to the ThoughtBot Slack, it's an incredible resource, but it is one that only we have to a certain degree. And I think we're somewhat pointed in being like, oh, that was a really good question and a really good answer. You want to write a blog post about that? That's a, almost an annoying theme within our Slack, um, but a wonderful way that I think we do share. I just wonder, I don't know, should I personally be sharing more via asking questions and then you know tracking down answers and whatnot? I'm going to opt for the, just the general no, because you use the word should. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, it's a dangerous word. Yeah. Uh, well, just because, I mean, you already, you do a lot of contribution uh, to the world, and you do a great job, I think, of sharing a lot of your knowledge and then the things that also trip you up. You'll talk about it here on the Bike Shed and share it with everyone. So I, I don't know. That is, it's tricky that we would feel odd that we haven't done it. I think that's my consensus from it, as I think it's just a truth and it's fine. And <laughs> and we look for ways to share um, where we have blog posts. And you're right, that is something that we do so vehemently in the ThoughtBot organization where someone has something interesting come along and we try to turn it into a blog post, which I'm in your world where I'm, I'm not great at doing the blog posts. Like I almost wish... I would start doing a little more of that, not even just for everyone else. This is very selfish, but just for me, because there are so many times that I just need to go back and reference. I will often share things in Slack just for the fact that I can go back and look at it. Like I was fussing with an Ember test and I couldn't figure out where this particular template was being rendered in the application. So I was trying to figure out
figure out how to pause that integration test so then I could actually see the page. And I shared that. Not that anybody else in my group had asked how to pause a number test, but I wanted to have it there so I could go back, which I did today. I was like, how did I do that? So I can scroll back up. So yeah, I would definitely be more for like more blog posts, even if they're very small, succinct blog posts. I think you and I both get, I know I do, get intimidated about the idea. It has to be this big, grand blog post, and it has to share all these new revolutionary things, and and that's just not true. That's, I think, a a very good and reasonable thing. Yeah, I kind of just wanted to know, because I I had this thought, and then I examined myself a little bit, and I was wondering where you stood. I still kind of think I should ask more questions on Stack Overflow, though. I get so much value from that platform, and you know, pay back a little bit, even if it's the selfish form of paying it back. Like if I have a question, I'll just go ask it there. I think for me, I've always been worried about bothering people. Like I've noticed I ask a lot of things in ThoughtBot Slack, but when I end up in client Slacks, I'm much more reserved in how much I'm speaking in different Slack rooms. And so it's a little bit of like my own personal psychology of like, why don't I talk as much in some context versus here on the microphone? I'm just babbling away. <laughs> I don't know. Safe space. ThoughtBot feels like a safe space oh, or in a studio. Yeah. Like it just feels more comfortable. But yeah, I hear you. Well, I mean, I'll support it. Like, if you want to ask more questions, I'll check in with you. (laughs) But like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) If that would help. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, keep me honest. Or maybe I'll just not do this. Who knows? (laughs) Tune in next week (laughs) to find out if Chris posted a question on Stack Overflow. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's enough analysis of my personal psychology. So I think we have a listener question to review. Yeah, we do. We've actually got several, though. Oh. Uh, but we've got just one that we have time for today. <laughs> but we have this awesome backlog of where folks have been sending in questions. So the question for today comes from Chris. And Chris wrote in, I used to work a lot in Ruby and Rails, but recently I've changed jobs and my new shop uses PHP. The question I have is, when do you know when it's time to create a new class versus using a hash object or associative array in PHP? There are several parts of my company's application where we're using an associative array to pass data around and manipulate what's already in the array before ultimately returning it as a JSON response. In most of these spots, it feels like we should be creating a class for the data. Do you have a rule of thumb for when it comes time to create a new class? Thanks for hosting such a great podcast and for taking the time to read my email. That was super nice of Chris. I love when people send us such nice things. So yeah, when to create a class in Ruby. I have some thoughts. Do you want to start? Well, let's go with your thoughts. Okay. So I don't have experience directly with PHP. That's not a, a language that I've used. But in Ruby, I tend to let my test let me know when I'm missing an object. Whenever I feel like tests are starting to have too many context and I'm having to test a variety of combinations or a variety of scenarios around a particular object, then I will start to see if there's something smaller than I can extract for this. One concrete example that I ran into recently is I'm building up a string, a summary of some revisions that have taken place about an object. And while building up those revisions, I need the data around it. But then I also want to format it in a certain way. And then I want to turn to a string and place like a, an M dash or something in between each particular sentence. So I had two tasks that were being done by one object where it was building up the data and then also formatting it. And I found my tests were just getting a bit verbose where I felt like I was testing some of the same stuff just so I could test the formatting of it. And I separated those two. So I made one object that knows explicitly how to format and then one that actually knew how to build up the data that I needed so then I could test those in isolation. So that's typically my gut instinct for when I will look for a way to extract a class or if I'm missing a class. For something that's, I believe, a little more specific to Chris's question around passing a hash 
I do think that's a really good opportunity to look for, is there something I can give a name to here? So if I'm passing around a hash, that hash likely represents something important to that system. And that's when I would look for the opportunity to extract that to an object, even if it's just purely for naming benefits. So that way I can capture it and then it may not have much behavior or anything that I need to test along with it, but it will be clear to the next reader what it is that's being passed around versus a hash with what may seem like kind of like random keys and values that are going along. I think those are two of my basic instincts when I'm looking for like when to create a class and then, yeah, SRP rules my life all the time. Single responsibility. <laughs> rules everything around you. <laughs> rules everything around me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the tests and then naming are both like two great heuristics that encourage this. And those definitely are ones that I consider as well. I think the way I viewed this question in particular to Ruby, I have never regretted creating a class or extracting a class. Like it is just almost always a thing that I appreciate and like to do. I really like the ergonomics around classes in Ruby. They're good ways to shape data. They're relatively succinct. They give me a lot of control and expressiveness. I really love constructing an API, controlling what's in the public API, what's exposed versus what's hidden. One of the other interesting things about Ruby is hashes are kind of rough to work with. Like they just look different. They feel a little clunkier. I have to make the brackets and have strings and strings feel less real than methods. And so there's just a lot of little things that I think encourage me in Ruby towards creating classes versus I'm not quite sure what the semantics of PHP because I also haven't worked with it much, but JavaScript is the other language that I work in a lot. With JavaScript, I create far fewer classes. And I think one of the reasons is the ergonomics of accessing just a nested object are much more straightforward. It feels like method calls. You're just foo.bar.baz, and it could be a JSON string that you parsed and turned into that object, but it feels like an object of equivalent value. And I actually really like that Ruby makes that distinction and doesn't make it as comfortable to interact with hashes. Um, and it's funny because like there's hashy mash, I want to say, which takes a hash and turns it into an object type thing. And I'm like, oh, I like that, but I kind of don't. Yeah, that, that's a weird one. Mm. I feel like when I've worked with that in the past, it never clicked for me. I don't remember exactly what it does. Maybe I didn't give it a fair shake, but it, it, yeah, it felt weird. I think it just takes a hash and then makes it so you can call method access style. Is that all it was? I thought I it also so. made it immutable. Oh, did it? Maybe. I may uh, be confusing it I mean, with that a sounds different... like a nice feature, frankly, but I also may be getting the library wrong, but there's definitely a thing that does something like that. And initially, I really liked that in Ruby, and then I grew to dislike it and be like, no, I'll just make a class here. This is very straightforward. I also feel like in my Ruby code, I'm defining more domain objects and more things that like, here's some data with some behavior, and I want to interact with it and build a system. My JavaScript code, and this is sort of purposeful, ends up being more of a reflection of data to the user. I get some data from the server, I present it to the user, I let them have a button, some affordances to change that data in some way, but ideally that change is just spit a thing out to the server, get back a new representation and show that to the user. To very briefly touch on my favorite topic, that's one of the reasons that I like GraphQL so much is it gets me closer to that ideal. I want my client-side code to be as simple as possible, and GraphQL really allows me to move in that direction. And so in that case, I'm less apt to make classes. So I'm sort of just reflecting data from the server out maybe making some buttons and things. But yeah, it's interesting. In Ruby, always. In other things, I don't know, sometimes probably should more, but I don't think I do. Yeah, I really like what you just said about the front-end client being more of a view layer where it's very much like all the logic is more for like push to the back end and it's more for rendering simplicity and data on the front end. That's something that I'm 
may start doing a little bit more with some of the work as I'm working in Ember. Right now, I'm still doing a lot of data manipulation on the front end side, and I'd really love to move it to the back end. Like the tests are faster, it just feels cleaner. But circling back to classes. So one of our colleagues, Eves Kobaisi, down in the, the Durham office, but it was a comment that he made around presenters, where a lot of times where someone is extracting an object to have something that represents that needs to be shown in the view, which is great to be using a presenter for that. But we will often name it like user presenter or domain object presenter, something that's a bit vague where we're mm. explicitly calling that. And Eves had mentioned that he is striving much more thoughtfully to always give that a specific name. So it's no longer just a user presenter, but it's like, what about this user is it that I'm trying to present? And maybe a good example of that is like a profile or something where it's, it is very much about the user. And we've added a bunch of methods and wrapped that around the user, but it's not just a, a user presenter. And I, I'm also with you. I don't think I've ever regretted making a, a class or an object. I'm trying to think if that's true. There are a lot of things I've regretted in my programming career, but making a class tends to not be one of them. It gives you that opportunity to build an abstraction to name something slightly different. Abstractions can be costly. So I have regretted some of those, but in specific, creating a class, extracting a class, it's almost always felt like a useful thing. You said something me. interesting we should talk about next time about all the things you've regretted in Ooh. your programming. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that sounds like a great topic. Yeah, we should dive into that one next time. But I think we're a little out of time for today. Thanks so much, Chris, for sending us that great question. Uh, so I think we're both in the camp of always make objects. Make more objects. Yep. Cool. So on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. And if you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, or if you would like to send us in a question, and again, we really love getting the questions from you folks, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. I'm at Chris Toomey on Twitter. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email it to hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.